Let's welcome our guest now. Dr. Kate Harrell wants women to stop putting themselves, and particularly their mental health, last. The GP's new book, The Flourishing Woman, is a mental health and well-being guide for women, and it follows her previous book focusing on men's mental health. It focuses on the practical small steps needed to begin fostering good mental health and well-being. Key to the strategy is being in tune with yourself and your emotions, feeling connected with others, and finding a sense of purpose. Tools include meditation, journaling, and regular exercise. There are others as well. Dr. Howell earlier wrote with her son, Strategies for Men's Mental Health, emerging in part from her work as a doctor in the Australian Defence Force, that her concern at how often trauma would be long suppressed. She also trains some of the trainers. Adelaide-based Dr. Hell has more than 40 years of training and experience across the health sector, including the training of GPs about mental health issues. Good morning. Welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Flourishing, um, it sounds like a kind of a florid word at first glance, but it actually has a very specific meaning in the context of mental health and mood, doesn't it? Can you explain? I can. It does. It means thriving. So I have to agree, when I hear the word flourishing, I think of, you know, beautiful flowers in the garden. And we can't necessarily feel like we're flourishing all the time because life throws many challenges at us. But the aim is to have greater well-being uh, so that we can get that sense of thriving. And well-being's not just about feeling good, it's about functioning well in our day-to-day life and in our relationships and connecting with people, as you mentioned, and being able to reach our potential, you know, contributing to society. Thriving itself doesn't mean you're um, fist-pumping your way through life either, does it? But what would you contrast it to? What are the states we can get into that are just a little bit well flat or stuck? What are the contrasts? Okay. So in during COVID, someone coined the term languishing, which was that, you know, feeling a bit flat, a bit um, not able to move, a, a bit overwhelmed by what was going on. So that's, you know, one that's been, um, you know, talked about in terms of a comparison to thriving. But I, in mental health terms, I suppose we talk about particular issues with mood or with stress or with anxiety, they would be the commonest ones. And obviously with mood, it may be feeling flat or it may actually be experiencing more of a depression. Your starting point is that women do not prioritise themselves. Now, apart from the obvious, why is that? Okay. I think that's because of a number of reasons. Um, a big one is our socialisation. And, you know, I can definitely remember as a child uh, at school, for example, being asked to uh, put others first, uh, which is not a bad thing. But when it's taken to the extreme and when it's often, we we take on that nurturing role to a great degree. And sometimes that means putting ourselves lower down on the priority list or even self-sacrificing. And we see people do that, women do that throughout life, don't we, with work or with family, uh, really putting the priorities that they see 
uh, above their own health and well-being. So this and is the next the, question. Is it possible to yeah. carry the responsibilities for so many others that women do, especially that sandwich generation with kids of a certain age, parents who are beginning to yes. ail? Is it possible to carry those responsibilities and still prioritise yourself, not just in practice, but say to yourself, actually, in the midst of all this, I matter, and I'm going to do some things to look after myself. Do we? Do we get? Do, do people get guilty when they do that? What? Yeah, sometimes they do get guilty uh, because of that background. So they, um, you know, might be the other thing that can happen. Of course, as we grow up, as we develop that sort of more self-critical inner voice. So um, you know, we may give ourselves a hard time because of it. But people do. You know, they, they. They do find that way of looking after others, caring for others, but also making sure they are caring for themselves. And that takes um, awareness and it takes those practical strategies, allocating some time uh, and remembering that we can't look after others if we don't look after ourselves. It's that old sort of metaphor of the oxygen coming down on the plane when we you know, we get instructed, if the mask comes down, put it on yourself first and then help others. Otherwise, you're going to be blacking out and not able to help other people. What role does physical health play in all this and in mental health? And why is making time for your physical health fundamental to what we're talking about here? Well, it is absolutely fundamental because we are made up of, you know, we're a whole and it's made up of our physical health and our mental health. We can add in there spiritual health, um, emotional health, financial health, social health, etc. So um, the physical health is is very much foundational and part of that picture. And our mind, our, our brain and nervous system need uh, exercise. They, it needs good nutrition to function well. It uses a lot of energy. Uh, so moving gets the blood circulating. It helps lift our mood. It helps calm us as well. So it's absolutely vital that we move our body. Is that a first step actually for many women beginning to re- shape the way they think and talk about this, a good time to do it is while going out for a walk or a cycle or a swim. Uh, that actually, that, that physical first step can help you on your way. It can. And often often we start with those uh, behavioural changes when we're working with someone who's perhaps dealing with some depression or anxiety because it's actually easier to change what we're doing rather than change what we're thinking. Sometimes the thoughts follow. So we often start with baby steps, very small steps, even if it's doing a few stretches in the house or walking around the garden or walking to the shop instead of driving to the shop. You know, small steps to to, to get that uh, exercise happening. And, of course, we get the feedback. We start to feel that little bit better from breathing some fresh air from a little bit of dopamine in our brain, from seeing nature and from the exercise. So it's a great way to start. This is a journey from self-criticism to self-compassion. Can you give us some examples of how people have done it? Well, again, it's awareness of that self-critical voice that, again, can develop 
from our experience growing up. We're like sponges when we grow up. So we take on board messages from family and uh, school and, and society. Social media, of course, is a huge one these days, influencing uh, everyone, particularly young people. So we will often say things to ourselves in our head. So our self-talk is often much more critical to ourselves than we would be if we were talking to a friend. And I often say that to clients, you know, would you say that to a friend? Well, no, no. So, but we say it to ourselves. We think we can beat ourselves up in our mind. So awareness is the first thing. And they're learning to be a bit gentler, a bit less harsh, a bit kinder in our thoughts. We are all human after all, and we have strengths and we have flaws. And we have to give ourselves a little bit of um, space, you know, to, to make those mistakes and to learn. So p compassion is bringing in that awareness, that kind of voice and recognise we are human. Is there a value in taking a break or significantly reducing your social media exposure while you're trying to do this? Well, for some people, um, absolutely yes. Keeping a, a, a bit of uh, a boundary around, a bit of containment. Uh, and when you think about it, for some people, they're on social media for hours every day, and of course, it is you know can be addictive because of the way it's set up, and uh, that can be a problem. But there's so many messages about what we should doing or should look like or should have in our life and so humans naturally do the comparison thing it's actually how we survive you know we, we want to compare you know is that a wild beast that's much bigger than us I better run away or fight the beast that's a useful comparison um, or is that car going to stop or not that's useful comparison but comparison to all these snapshots on social media and often artificial photos and so on, they've been uh, modified, is not always that useful because um, people don't show their, uh, you know, they don't show their flaws on social media, do they? Part of what you're talking about is actually just self-acceptance, warts and all. And, and again, yes. that's what that socialisation is an issue, isn't it? This idea um, that women have to look perfect, talk perfectly, speak perfectly, do this, do that, imposed from outside. Is there a process where you can go through where actually I'm wearing my PJs all morning while I'm working from home or looking after the kids and I don't really care. And by the way, they don't come from Lululemon or wherever. You know, do, can, can you start some self-talk towards self-acceptance? Because your starting point is that, that people put themselves last and part of putting yourself first is to say, actually, I'm okay as I am. I don't have to fit with what you or anyone else determines I should be. Yes, and it is that self-talk and it is also coming back to your values, you know, what's important to you in life and and they are really the driving force, you know, is, is it that your family is your primary um, thing of importance in life, is it your work and something you're uh, trying to achieve for the community or is it your spirituality is it your garden you know what what do you value what's important to you that's where your priorities lie uh, and it's often where our passion lies so that's a good starting point another's changing some of those 
stories that we develop too growing up about ourselves. So one I often use in teaching is, you know, I'm a I'm a hopeless cook. And, you know, it's a bit of a joke with my friends because I never really learnt to cook particularly. And so I, I give myself a, a hard time. I go, I'm a hopeless cook, you know, can't cook anything. But the reality is I did pick up things along the way and I do cook some things for myself and I did cook for my family when they were younger. So the truth is, is you know, somewhere in the middle path. We often think in those extremes. So we have to learn to reframe our thinking and find the more positive side to it. And actually, it. we can't all and, be brilliant at everything anyway. So focus instead on something you are good at. It's what we ruminate on the most that, that sets the mood, right? Um, yeah. I, I'd like to bring up resentment, resentment and anger. And different people okay. handle this differently. And it can really mess with any attempt to manage your... Uh, in a voice, which is kind of what we're alluding to. That's the that's the tape recorder we want to change from negative, negative, negative to you know much more positive, uh, and 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 actually affirming to yourself that it's okay for you to want some things. Um, but resentment and anger are so such forces that they can just come in and smash whatever attempt you are having to edit your inner voice. How do you address yes. them? Okay, so. Resentment, I think most women will have experienced this, and particularly when they're, they are uh, caring for everyone else and doing many, many tasks in life. You know, a friend of mine often says, you know, we can have it all in life, but not at the same time. It's not humanly possible. So we're often carrying this big load and we start to feel resentful about it. And so we have to, again, step back and have a look okay, what's contributing to this? You know, what's my stuff? What's other people's stuff? What's the influence of society? And again, we were sold this idea of the perfect woman looking great, um, working, successful, mothering, partnering, traveling, (laughs) you know, all at the one time. So, we have to get a different perspective on it, but then also deal with it both within ourselves and with other people. And sometimes we have to do a bit of a reset and sit down and say, look, I am um, uh, feeling resentful around this because I'm carrying such a huge huge load. And I think as a couple or a family or a workplace, we need to have a look at this and and look at whether it's realistic and do a reset. So some of this is about being able to recognise, be able to verbalise, be a bit assertive about it and bring about change that way. Bring a plan to the anger and the resentment rather than wallowing in it. Turn it into a plan. Just before we leave this idea of... uh, the self and and actually you're allowed um, to want good things for yourself and to want to change things that aren't working for you. You suggest people find their, is it ikigai? This is a Japanese concept and I think this is a concept in many cultures. Uh, and someone listening right now might sort of burst out laughing when we suggest it, but um, at some point there's a lovely confluence that can happen that can assist that sense of flourishing no matter what we're going through. What's your understanding of it? Well, it is a lovely concept and I'll just preempt it by saying, you know, not every, it's about really uh, finding a sense of purpose, meaning in, in life. Not everyone has a strong sense of purpose and that's okay, 
uh, and purpose will vary for people. But it's about looking at, you know, what what do we have some passion about? What do what are we interested in? What do we enjoy? But also, what are we naturally good at? Do, do we have strengths somewhere, uh, skills somewhere? It, it may be caring. It may be painting. It may be um, uh, hospitality. You know, whatever it is, where are our skills? But also, if we're looking at uh, functionality, you know, is it something too that we can actually earn a living with? And all of those things overlap and come together and at the centre is that is that sense of, of purpose. Our guest is Dr Kate Howell. We're talking about The Flourishing Woman, which is her latest book, uh, The Mental Health of Women. In a moment we're going to talk about an earlier one she wrote for men and what brought her to do that. Particular issues, obviously you write about menopause um, and, and the hormonal issues, and that, they don't necessarily only accompany menopause, they accompany perimenopause, they accompany um, pregnancy. Uh, mm. This is this is obviously particular to the women's experience of um, unease or, or disease or, or 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 unhappiness about about things. It can be a contributor. How do you come at it? It's a healthy way to come at it. Okay, so yes, we do have various times of um, hormonal change uh, throughout our lifespan: pregnancy, perimenopause, menopause, puberty. You know. Even monthly for some women, there's you know enormous hormonal variation. So there will be a lot of difference between women. We're all unique. And I guess the thing for me, I mean, I work as a GP, uh, less so now. I work as a therapist and educator mainly. So what needs to happen is really, again, recognising there are some challenges with it and having a... GP, medical professional, to be able to ha- to sit down with you and actually do a good assessment of, okay, what is actually contributing to this? What's physical, uh, hormonally based? What's other health issues? So all the physical stuff, even medication you might be taking. What's more psychological, emotional? And what's practical, functional? You know, are there financial stresses, social relationship stressors? Are you exhausted not sleeping, um, which will come into the physical and the emotional too. So it's teasing all of that out and then working out what do we need to address and how. Is it is it information you need? Is it those those lifestyle changes, getting better sleep, getting the exercise, getting good nutrition, cutting down alcohol? You know, what is it? Is it that the physical hormonal issues need to be addressed through menopausal, for example, hormonal therapy? Or is there also an issue around mental health in terms of anxiety or depression? And that's determined through the history, so so the information we get, but blood tests. And there are also uh, now questionnaires that help tease out what's more mental health based. And that when those issues are um, severe, they need perhaps addressing through medication as well. But the more moderate to severe also obviously need psychological therapy. Kate, can we discuss anxiety because of all sort of mood issues, uh, mental health issues that a generation or generations plural is experiencing and what is a very fast world, a hyper-connected world, a mm. hyper-stimulated world, this one seems to be particularly prevalent in our era. 
uh, although it's existed well before our era. Can you speak to it? Sure. So, yes, it is particularly prevalent. You know, anxiety disorders have been the most common uh, mental health problem for a long time, but certainly uh, younger ones are experiencing a lot of anxiety. COVID pandemic didn't help with that. And I think you're right, the the fast-paced, frenetic world. So it is a time of um, demands. Anxiety is about fear. It's about threat. And stress is about all the demands on us. So the stress will contribute to the anxiety. And also, we, you know, it's possible that over time, because anxiety does protect us, that genetically maybe we're a bit more likely to develop anxiety. So there may be changes there too. But it's important, again, to, to pause, have a look at life, have a look at how you're feeling, uh, are there things contributing to the anxiety? Are there those stressors? They found during COVID-19 the key stressors were, in fact, social stresses, so not being connected with people, uh, particularly during lockdowns and so on, and the financial stress. So it wasn't necessarily the worry about the the, the disease, although for many people that, that was an issue and, of course, loss and grief if if we lost loved ones. For the majority, it was those other stressors. So again, a holistic approach, look at lifestyle, uh, look at talking to someone, look at, at uh, other therapies that may be useful. You know, things like yoga can be incredibly useful. Uh, and part of, part of the, the treatment too is looking at screen time. Are we getting time away from the screen and getting out into nature? Do we need medication? All of those things. One of the things we keep saying about the problem with uh, being always online is that the nervous system can't really differentiate between something that happened 20 years ago, say the Twin Towers falling, uh, and watching mm. it again now. It will react to the same stimulus. That was why re repeating all the same images over and over again is so unhelpful. Mm. And, you know, if you're, if you're reading tonight what you read this morning and it's the same thing, why? Your nervous system can't discriminate that. Uh, so no. just taking control of that stuff can make a difference. This follows yes. your book, your earlier book about the changing man, a mental health guide. And there seems to have been a couple of prompts to this. One was what your experience when you were a doctor for the, for the Australian Defence Force. Uh, and then later was what you were experiencing when, um, um, oh no, I think, I think promoting the first book was what made you write the second book, right? But what is it that's that's particular or different about men's experience of these mood and mental health and self-esteem issues from your experience? Yeah, and and I'll say that the defence environment, um, you know, the thing that triggered writing that book was a soldier who'd been holding on to symptoms related to trauma for many, many, many years. And uh, when he finally said to me, there's a problem, um, I just really felt for him that he'd been dealing with it on his own for so long. So for men, there are some barriers to seeking help. And for the Defence Force in particular, the, the social ideas that men take on board is uh, I have to be strong and uh, the provider and, you know, all of those sort of um, ideas from society. Uh, if you ask a young boy what the ideal man is, they still say muscular, strong, tall, um, 
you know, be the breadwinner. So it's fascinating. Those messages are still there, which means to it means that if if there's a mental health problem, it can be perceived as weakness. So it's very shameful to seek help at times and say I I'm I, I'm experiencing this because the perception then is shame. So we have to um, we are gradually breaking that down and it is improving, but it's certainly still there to a degree. And also men. There are some um, differences in terms of our brains between uh, men and women. So for men, the emotional centre, for whatever reason, has stronger connections with the movement, the motor centre, so action. So men will often uh, take action rather than talking about their emotions. So rather than seeking help and saying, I'm feeling down, I'm feeling anxious, they may instead do something positive like exercise more, but they may also uh, medicate themselves with alcohol uh, or other self-destructive behaviours. Whereas for women, the emotional centre has strong connections with their language centres. So we tend to talk to a friend or journal or maybe seek help a little bit more often. So there's barriers for men in seeking help. Uh, and also it has implications for how we treat. You know, many men go to a doctor with physical symptoms rather than emotional symptoms. They'll say, I'm tired, I'm not sleeping. So GPs have to be alert to this and make sure they address the mental health side. Is self-talk as useful a tool to change a thinking pattern for men as it is for women? It certainly is a a useful tool. Um, The behavioural strategies as well in terms of uh, engaging in activities, connecting with other people through interests, uh, exercise, you know, all of those things are important. But we do need to address how we manage our thoughts. Uh, And it it, it is a very active process in a way. You know, it's a step-by-step process. So so I haven't found men have a problem relating to that at all. Uh, but often, as I said, we start with the more action-based behavioural strategies. Another interesting thing, you know, some, ty- some therapists do walk and talk therapy. So they go for a walk while they talk to a bloke. And because action's involved, and particularly for a young man, there's a bit less eye contact, it's often um, perceived as being a, a much more comfortable space. That's right. uh, you tell to mums talk. to talk to your boys in the car, isn't it, when you're driving? That's no it. eye contact. That's the one. Yeah. <laughs> Kat, thanks so much. Dr. Kat Hell and her latest book is The Flourishing Woman. It followed her earlier book, The Changing Man.